0: Welcome to Professor's Talk Pedagogy, a podcast from the Academy for Teaching and Learning at Baylor University. I'm your host, Christopher Richman. Professor's Talk Pedagogy presents discussions with great professors about pedagogy, curriculum, and learning in order to propel the virtuous cycle of teaching. As we frankly and critically investigate our teaching, we open new lines of inquiry, we engage in conversation with colleagues, and we attune to students' experiences, all of which not only improves our teaching, but enriches and motivates ongoing investigation. And so the cycle continues. Today, our guest is Dr. Becca Cassidy, Graduate Writing Center Program Director at Baylor University. Dr. Cassidy holds a PhD in Rhetoric and Composition from Baylor, with the dissertation exploring the ways writing consultants draw on prior knowledge when facing unfamiliarity in tutoring sessions. In her research, Dr. Cassidy aims to identify ways to help writers and writing consultants approach writing as a subject to be studied and understood. In her current role, she directs a team of graduate writing consultants from across disciplines as they work with students on their writing and publications, offering feedback on writing projects and helping foster effective writing and publication habits. We are delighted to have Dr. Cassidy on the show to discuss one growing area of her consultation work with graduate students, crafting teaching philosophy statements. All right, Becca Cassidy, thank you for joining the show.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: We are talking today about teaching philosophy statements, and even though this is, of course, something that faculty in general deal with uh, to some extent throughout their careers, uh, we're especially concerned about the graduate student experience because the stakes are pretty high when it comes to applying to jobs and having all the documents, and we see increasingly that that search committees and institutions are asking for teaching philosophy statements from applicants so as we talk about this i kind of want to you you've heard me talk uh, talk about this in different settings but i kind of want to clear the air about some maybe concerns or caveats that we should sort of say at the beginning when it comes to teaching philosophy statements. And I sent you these uh, ahead of time so that you could sort of see where my my brain was on this, but I want you to, to jump in on this. I've got four caveats or concerns when it comes to teaching philosophy statements for the sort of let's just think of like the typical graduate student who is on the job market, as we say, the first one being that it, this is a genre of writing that that the person writing it has almost zero familiarity with, very little familiarity with it. And I, I think that we often don't give graduate students sort of the perspective that here's a new genre of writing that we need to sort of talk about, analyze, and then figure out how to approach it from from that perspective
1: yeah um, as with every piece of writing there are conventions that we need to be thinking about and it's really easy to think well I you know especially if you're from a writing heavy writing intensive discipline you're like I should be able to write this but if no one's actually taught you how there's no reason that you should magically know right so don't get discouraged about that yeah so they
0: they may they may have you know, as graduate students, they may already have several publications on their CV, yes. and sort of begin to think, "Oh, I'm I can write. I'm a writer." Uh, but you throw anyone into a new, a new rhetorical situation, shall we say, and there's going to be a period of of difficulty, of struggle, sort of finding. You know, when, when I when I go to graduate student gatherings, I'm often invited to give some kind of talk on teaching philosophy statements, and I say, "What if someone said?" you know write a haiku and it's supposed to be like a great haiku and all that they did is give you like one example of a haiku and all of a sudden you're just supposed to produce this thing and you and you really don't understand not only the mechanics of it but like how to make it sing like what makes a good haiku (laughs) yeah
1: yeah i think it's just really important also to use models um when you're looking at new genres like this too so if you can get your hands on some some teaching philosophies from other people, too. That's a big help help in learning.
0: Yeah, because you always want to balance the here's sort of the rules and the conventions with here's how those things were actually sort of playing out in someone's, you know, in the wild, as you might say, like actual uh, documents. So this idea of genre is one uh, concern that I just think that we need to put in the in the forefront. Another one is a little bit uh, more difficult, just because it's more multifaceted in its implications, and that is that we that we, being the academy, we ask graduate students, those on the job market, to produce these teaching philosophy statements when they really have little or sometimes no real teaching experience. Uh, a lot of times in STEM, for instance, you know they've, they've they've led labs, but they didn't have the experience of like creating a whole course on their own or or writing a syllabus, or creating uh, assignments, thinking about the alignment of objectives and assessments and all those things that we know go into thoughtful, reflective teaching. And yet we say, "Let's <laughs> give me a document that shows you know how to do all of this with little, yeah. uh, zero or very little experience. Yes, what are and- the various implications of that from your perspective? Yeah.
1: Well, I would just say, you need to try to capitalize on whatever you have. Yep. So I would emphasize any guest lecturing or guest teaching, draw on those, uh, familiarize yourself with teaching literature. Um, so like what what is said about teaching in the field, the scholarly um, implications and those discussions and think about what you would do. But I mm-hmm. do agree. So for example, in my program, we started teaching like a two, two load in our second year, yeah, and so we have a lot of experience, but even in that, um, a lot of it, we didn't always develop, we didn't develop that from the ground up, right? We, we were handed a curriculum, right. and then, you know, modified it, but mm-hmm. even then, be thinking about what, what am I believing about teaching, and, yeah. and so it's hard sometimes to, to get to the root of that, yep. even when you do have that experience.
0: As a graduate student, I had, in, in religion, I had probably by comparison quite a bit of freedom to you know craft my course mm. from the ground up and and think it think it all through. But even in that setting, I was given a list of I think half a dozen textbooks mm. that I had to choose from. And so even something as simple as that 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 uh, that a a, a full time kind of permanent faculty member um, would just take for granted like well I can. in in many circumstances. I can choose whatever textbook. You know, there are some STEM departments that might, you know, have agreed upon a common textbook, but in most situations, you've got that freedom to make those choices and then reflect on what worked and what didn't, Um, but there's just so many constraints as a graduate student when you're teaching. Not to mention, like, the time that you can devote to teaching yes. because you're trying to write a dissertation or finish coursework and all those kinds of things too.
1: And if you start later in your program in terms of teaching, you also don't have the opportunity to see how that develops and yeah. what changes you would make
0: mm-hmm. as you
1: realize, oh, I don't like that way of teaching, yeah. what would I do instead? So just be mindful of that. Um, and you can even allude to what you would do differently, I think, I yeah. think. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, but don't get discouraged. I would right now, if you're listening to this, be thinking about where are some opportunities for me to teach. I would reach out to professors if you're not already teaching, ask to guest lecture, yep. things like that mm-hmm. um to start getting some of that.
0: It's so interesting that you say if you don't don't have uh, experience teaching until later on in your in your graduate student experience because I think uh, you you're coming from our English department where. They, you do teach, you know, quite a bit, pretty early on, and in some of other disciplines, it's not till you're exactly. five or something like that. Do you have any thoughts about like the pros and cons of that?
1: Oh goodness, that's <laughs> I feel like that's a whole can of worms. Um, Let's open it. <laughs> I do. <laughs> Let's open it. I think. Um, I think it was a great learning experience for me to be able to start early on mm-hmm. and, and to get all of that experience. I did have to devote a lot of time to it. Yeah. Um so I was in coursework and doing that as well and so I just had to kind of balance. I gr- I'm glad that I love teaching and so yeah. that is what really s- kind of one of the main factors in me wanting to get my PhD. Yeah. And so I didn't mind putting in the time. Yeah. Um, other people it felt a little more burdensome, I yeah. think. Um, but also, I do think there's value in starting early and being able to develop as a teacher because you have a there's an identity as a teacher that's yes. different from your identity as a researcher mm-hmm. and a student. And so to be able to develop that, yeah. I think is really valuable.
0: Yeah. Um,
1: but again, don't get discouraged if you don't have that early on because then you can really focus on your research and then how that then plays into your teaching um, which is something we can talk about later in this podcast but um, yeah and it's different
0: it's different for every person you know because you're developing as you say like these different they're 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 parallel and kind of adjacent and interwoven identities but they are separate identities that need their own kind of nurturing along along the way I, I remember because we didn't start teaching in my department until I think it was the fifth year. Mm-hmm. And I remember m- many of my colleagues saying because at that point, you're, you're writing your dissertation too, yes. saying, Oh, the, the 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 teaching prep is just just absorbing so much of my time. And I remember thinking then and I'm clarifying my thoughts now too <laughs> about this is that we didn't have any experience of what you call that like that balancing until I mean the stakes were really high cuz like you got to write your dissertation you know and so we didn't have any any skills of how to balance those two things whereas if you had maybe if we had maybe been teaching earlier there's other liabilities to that but at least we would have had the opportunity to like figure out like how do these things kind of work together in the same person with only 24 hours in each day <laughs> yes
1: no i would agree with that
0: so, one of the real sore spots for me on, on this is uh, writing teaching philosophy statements. Uh, you know, because I spend a lot of my time just thinking about teaching and thinking about how to communicate effective teaching practices to people. And I feel as though, you know, I've been in my current position at the ATL for a little over five years. I feel like I'm only just now developing a philosophy, <laughs> like a true philosophy yep. of, of teaching, uh, and yet we ask students, and this goes back again to to experience, but just in terms of like sophistication of uh, of the thoughts, not just the writing, but the thoughts too about teaching, the the, the inexperience, that the unavoidable inexperience there, and how do we kind of, if we're on the end of reading these documents for as a search committee like how do we read them generously and uh, still kind of expect something important to be said out of these any thoughts about that
1: well i would agree i mean even as a grad student who was applying places i still felt like i was writing my teaching philosophy and I was like, what do I <laughs> what, what is am my, I saying? Yeah, what right, right. what is my philosophy? Yeah. And so, um, honestly, and I, I was gonna talk about this later, but I think one of the biggest things is before you even start writing your philosophy statement, be brainstorming these very general questions that seem basic, but we don't often articulate for yeah. ourselves. So things like, How do people learn? Yeah. How do I facilitate that learning? What goals do I have for my students? Why do I teach the way that I do? So those bigger, broader categories. Mm -hmm. And then even more specific, so then what do I implement in the classroom? Are these things working? How do I know that they're working? Um, What effect do these things have on my students? So these bigger things, before you try to like craft some beautiful statement, you need to be thinking about those things more broadly so that you can then connect it to actual practice yeah yeah um so that's but it's it's difficult again if you don't have the ton of experience but you you still need to be thinking about your ideas what do you think learning is yes what do you think needs to happen in the classroom and that can kind of help shape that a little bit
0: so for your own self you need to clarify these thoughts and then when it comes to to articulating them putting them into a document there's the additional challenge of of you know in in your field in rhetoric and composition like you know audience matters so much you send them off to these search committees and you don't really know like how sophisticated their understanding those readers their understanding is of things like how people learn and effective pedagogy and you might get people on the search committee who have really pretty poor understanding of these things and are looking for stuff that really doesn't belong <laughs> it's a it's a it's a real difficult situation I think I, that's why this is under the table of under the heading of like caveats, caveats. and concerns
1: <laughs> I would agree and to that I would say there's only so much you can do yeah you need to do your best to really lay out not just what you do but why yeah and I think if you can justify that yeah, and show mm-hmm. why that works then that helps alleviate some of that
0: yeah yeah so to some degree it becomes uh, an argument or persuasion and I think that's best uh, we, could, we could talk about this in other, in other, from other angles too but it's best to maybe like avoid the buzzwords that don't really mean anything but instead take that opportunity to say well if, if I'm tempted to say something like critical thinking in this <laughs> document like what do I really mean by that and how do I really make a case for that thing being important and then maybe you come around to persuading your reader you know of, of what you are Initially, would just have said as critical thinking.
1: Yes. Yep.
0: Another thing that is, uh, I think, of some concern here, and this again comes is maybe my own my own psychology uh, on this is that we call these things philosophy statements when maybe that's far too generous a term <laughs> for what we're actually asking. Um, you know, true true philosophy has a necessary kind of um, freedom to it and unboundedness to it. But you know anyone who teaches in higher ed and well in any formal education setting, for the most part, there's there's boundaries everywhere you look. You know there's uh, there's the semester schedule. There's the three day uh, three day a week versus two day a week. There's uh, in some departments there's expectations of midterms and finals. Even when you walk into a classroom in higher ed, if you know you probably don't have much choice about what room you're teaching in so you might get a room with that that has very few affordances for the things that you might want to do like active learning and think of that things like that so you know if you've got a classroom with chairs bolted down and no and and no extra room for students to actually form groups or that kind of thing like all the philosophy in the world doesn't can't can't overcome some of those things so I think that we sometimes uh, th- maybe the reason that that, that, that uh, writers of teaching philosophy statements struggle with this is because they have in their mind that they are supposed to be writing a philosophy, mm. but really we're asking for something a little more finely fine grained than that like how do you succeed within the boundaries exactly. is really what we're at I don't, yes. there's not a word for it that i can come <laughs> up with right now but.
1: well no i that makes sense yes you're basically proving <laughs> that within the confines yes. the constraints that you've mm-hmm. been given this is how you would play this out yeah um yeah and i don't know that there's a real way around that yeah mm-hmm. that's just the reality yeah so i think but again explaining why you think certain things should be done a certain way, Yep. Um, I think that's important. Because wherever you're going, the constraints might be similar, but they might not be right. And Mm -hmm. so you need to show that adaptability as well.
0: Yeah. I mean, and there's there's growing literature on this. But it might be a perfectly valid and defensible uh, aspect of your philosophy of teaching that you think uh, grades should not exist. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that's a, that's a perfectly uh, uh, commendable and respectable position, but you can't really just say that in a teaching philosophy statement because most in- institutions are going to say, well, you need to assign grades. So. I'll- if you're going to talk about grades in your teaching philosophy statement, you better explain how you, your ideas fit into the institutional yes. expectations.
1: Yes. And that goes back to keeping your audience in mind, and yeah. that's not just the search committee; that's the mission of the yeah. college or university or wherever you're mm-hmm. applying to. And so, you can be bold, but you better be prepared to, <laughs> to <laughs>
0: I like that. Yeah. You know,
1: <laughs> deal with the consequences yeah. of whatever you say mm-hmm. in your philosophy. Yes. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So let's let's make this a little bit more concrete now, and just in terms of the consultation work, uh, students come come to you and your consultants looking for help with their teaching philosophy statements. What do you see are some of the things that are maybe the the, the common uh, obstacles or problems in these that that are kind of easy to you know just write the ship sort of quickly?
1: So some of the the easiest things I would say might seem small, but things like word word choice mm-hmm. and being economical with your wording are things that if you just go through with a fine tooth comb, those are very impactful things that you can change. So things like you don't need all these long adverbial phrases and yeah. this wordiness. You have a very short amount of space, small amount of space to say a lot. Um, so. Get rid of those things. Um, things like, as well, gushy language. Like, it was an honor to have had the opportunity to lead this group. <laughs> yeah. Just say, I led. Yeah. <laughs> because yeah. it's not some miraculous, mm-hmm. like, miraculous honor that you got to do that. It's your job and you were qualified. Yeah. And that's what you did. So, yeah. avoiding language like that can also strengthen your statement. Um, and then another thing is to avoid vague language so you were kind of talking about buzzwords earlier so ask yourself is there i would ask myself is there any professor who would disagree with what i'm saying so if if all of my paragraphs are saying vague things like i want to foster understanding or i want to Mm -hmm. i want students to engage with the material i don't think any you know every other person is going to agree with that (laughs) so (laughs) um get away from that vague language or things that might not mean anything like critical thinking and kind of dive deeper. And so being aware of those things, um, those are some of the the easier fixes, I think. Um, I think some of that
0: comes down to, especially with the, I love your word, your gushy, your word (laughs) gushy there, Uh, especially when it comes to gushy language is just the 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 writerly skill of conciseness yes. right is that you put in you put in adverbs so that you have the satisfaction of taking them out and knowing you don't need them <laughs> i mean that's what i've come to <laughs> appreciate right. in my yeah. in my process of writing you put them in because they feel right in the moment when you're writing them and then you have to learn to love the the backspace button on those yes. because it really does just com- you're, you're trying to communicate the ideas and adverbs and adjectives stand between, uh, the, the ideas and your reader. Yes. They, they, they form a kind of a, a screen.
1: And I would also say, and this is for every type of writing that I see, people are very attached to what they've written mm-hmm. and they hate cutting things. Yeah. And at the end of the day, writing is a generative process. So, as you write, you're coming to the ideas that you're actually trying to say, yeah, and yeah. so it's okay to get rid of some of the stuff that's in your first early draft because right. it no—it served its purpose mm-hmm. to develop those ideas, and now you need to get rid of it because your reader doesn't need to see that. Yep, mm-hmm. they need to see that that final the good nuggets of what you're actually trying to say. Yeah. So yes, the so the simple things like word choice, those actually make a huge difference holistically. Yeah even though it seems minor.
0: Do you think there's any difference in uh, in, in a, the discipline that the writer is coming from? I think I'm gonna kind of lead, lead you on this, um, <laughs> but you can totally disagree. I, because I've, I've been asked to give feedback on several graduate students' teaching philosophy statements. And I think that I've seen more problems with the gushy language from STEM folks, and I don't know if it's because they're just like really excited to kind of like <laughs> have a first-person voice for once, you know, when yeah. their discipline really denies them that and 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 favors you know more of a cold analytic style of writing. Um, I have a very small sample to, to make <laughs> this claim on, but
1: yes, I wonder if part of that is just because. It, sadly i think a lot of stem programs don't emphasize writing enough and so yeah. they just don't talk about writing yeah and what needs to happen whereas in a field like english we talk about it constantly right. yep. and so um we know when it's appropriate to use maybe gushier language yep. mm-hmm. versus to just stay the course um but i don't I think a lot of it, too, is the individual writer. I've seen some excellent STEM writers yep. mm-hmm. who just, you know, because they're used to writing lab reports and things like that, they just get right down to yeah, it. Yeah, So I think it, it's also probably based on the individual. Yep. Um, and I also would say that even reading models. So, for example, there's a model that we have in the GWC that is from a poetry professor. And so she includes, like, a couple lines of poetry in the beginning yeah. and, you know, brings it back to that at the end. So things like that, I don't necessarily think are gushy, but they certainly wouldn't be appropriate in some other settings. Sure. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's very content related, very, you know, people in that discipline would think that's great. Yeah. Whereas in others, it would be a little taboo, I would say.
0: So do folks come to you and your consultants with particular questions in mind particular problems that they uh, are noticing in their in their documents or do they just say help me <laughs> do they <laughs> no. know enough to know what to ask
1: That's a great question yeah. and I think the answer is no yeah. oftentimes yeah. so they'll come with complete drafts and really what they want to know is did I do this right right yeah. what it, what it, what are they looking for and they often ask first like i didn't really know where to start Mm -hmm. so those brainstorming questions that i mentioned earlier are what i point them to before they try to do that but also um they ask like how do i organize this yep there's unless you've been told there's really not a clear expectation but what i would say to that if we're getting down to the nitty gritty i would say think about it um in terms of you have this intro that you really need to attract the committee with at the end of that intro you need a very clear what we would think of as a thesis statement that is a very clear statement of this is what drives my teaching this is what i believe teaching is or should be and then every paragraph after that needs to tie back to that statement it needs a clear topic sentence um, that then connects overall and within those paragraphs you need very specific evidence, and when I say specific evidence, I'm talking not just the vague kind of, so for a lot of literature ones, for example, people will say things like, I strive to create a student-centered classroom by using discussion groups to talk about the readings in each of my classes. Yeah, That's great, but so do all 200 other applicants yes, in uh, literature uh, uh-huh. fields. So don't just tell me you use discussion, tell me what are they reading? What kinds of questions are you asking them to think about? You can give examples of those questions. What kinds of insights do they tend to walk away with as students? So really, Um, Getting into those examples, that's another question that students ask. If they know enough about teaching philosophies, they'll ask, am I specific enough? Usually the answer is no. And so then what we get to do or what my consultants get to do really is to then ask, like talk to them about their teaching. Like, well, tell me about what's your favorite lesson that you teach Mm -hmm. or what stands out to you in your course? Yeah. And then usually they'll tell us these really rich stories that are not in their philosophy yeah. and they need to be mm-hmm. um, because that's what's going to make them stand out yeah. from the other applicants. Yeah,
0: I, We spent a lot of time at the beginning sort of bemoaning the system <laughs> of this. But on the other hand, I think also helping the writers of these documents have some empathy for the readers of the document because we're, especially now where the, the situation is higher in higher ed as you, sort of Mm -hmm. alluded to is there's gonna be hundreds of applicants for some of these jobs Mm -hmm. and um, increasingly they're asking for teaching philosophy statements at at the front end of it not like second or third round of it but like at the front end so do you really think that that this committee is reading uh, is reading carefully 200 some documents they're probably skimming them okay is is the just the reality of it mm-hmm. so the better your organization is the tighter your writing is the, the the easier it is to see what your thesis statement is and the more grabbing the more hooking it is yes. all the better right because yes. as you say like that whole standout uh part of it so the i think james lang wrote somewhere like the 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 worst thing about teaching philosophy statements is they're so forgettable yes and so that's you know when it comes down to like tell me actually tell me a story right in this document
1: yes this is a place you can have narrative Um, Mm -hmm. you can do some fun things where you link your intro to your conclusion and use very specific examples Um, there's just a lot of there is a lot of room for creativity within you know while still being kind to your reader like you said yeah so use your topic sentences to really drive home what is this paragraph about yep. um, and how is it different from my other paragraphs like what is yep. specific about this paragraph that I want mm-hmm. you to know about how I teach yeah. and make it easy for them to look at the first sentence and see if it's worth reading you yeah, know <laughs> yeah
0: yeah so you can as a as the writer of this document you can like Go into that mode of if you have experience reading and grading students' writing, yes. like develop that empathetic go. Okay, well, I know that the ones that are easy to read and assess are the ones that have these qualities of of topic sentences and clear organization. And we love this students. <laughs> students. Yes, uh, exactly. Is there anything else that comes to mind with the 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 more difficult aspects of teaching philosophy statements, the, um, like in terms of how to correct, that's probably not the right word, correct, but how to improve?
1: Well, I don't know that I have any great on-the-spot advice for this, but I did mention earlier having a cohesive teaching and research identity, I Mm -hmm. think, um, is important, and sometimes it can be hard to do without kind of overstating it. Um, I think that's something to think about. I think Making your statement cohesive without repeating yourself is really difficult. So, I think back. I recently, in prepping for this, found my like first draft of my teaching philosophy. It was so horrible, (laughs) and basically because all the things, yes, um, all the things that I was just saying about being vague and Uh you know not having strong topic sentences that actually say something different than your other paragraphs. Basically I was just saying the same thing over and over again Mm -hmm. with a different example in each paragraph. Yeah. But it's very, you want to show different aspects of your teaching beliefs and how those come together. And so I think being very aware of what is this paragraph saying that is new that I have not yet said, how does that help them understand me as a teacher more? Um, that's something I would say. And then I think we really covered, I was going to bring up being specific with examples yep. can be difficult if you don't have a lot of teaching experience. Right. So again, being aware of what can I draw on? Yep. Um, and if you don't have a lot of experience, you can you can be honest about that without really <laughs> being too vulnerable, <laughs> being um, like, you know, I'd, I'd not really, um, I don't really know what I'm doing, but, I would hope that i can do xyz i wouldn't quite say it like that i would um try to capitalize on what you do know right emphasize that
0: yeah i when i speak with graduate students um in in their teaching seminars across campus one of the things that i do is i say okay i'm i'm you've all got your computers open or a phone i want you to create a document right now and call it teaching examples. And I, <laughs> yes. seri- I and I just wait them wait for them to do it and I say, "Okay, now you have a document that whenever something cool or mm-hmm. interesting uh, successful or wildly unsuccessful happens in teaching that you experience as a teacher or as a student as a as a TA, write it down because when if if, if you try to write the teaching philosophy statement and then try to think about like <laughs> examples like just cold out of the blue you're not going to have as rich details and you're going to forget you're going to forget some really interesting things that happened and you're just it's going to be poor in general for it so having really good examples you 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 won't end up using nine-tenths of them but just having them there when you do need to write that document
1: that's a good point too about as a student. Yeah. So that's another way to kind of make up for any lack of experience. Yeah. Is we have <laughs> we've been students for a long time yes. at this yeah. point. Mm-hmm. And so you've experienced a wide range as a grad student. Yeah. So think about that as well.
0: Yeah. That is an aspect that sort of cuts both ways because one of the things that I tell folks too is that you have to remember that y- that you are unlike most of the students you will teach yes like you care about this material <laughs> way more and you know way more so what worked for you as a student might not be the best roadmap to teach the whole right to teach yes. the the mythical average student or this <laughs> or the struggling student for sure the struggling student True. right and so you have to sort of filter through you know, if you're thinking about using your own learning experiences as a model for how do people learn or something like mm-hmm. that, you have to remember, like, I am, I am unlike most students. But just by virtue of the fact <laughs> that you are now in grad school and you're thinking about, you know, being a professor and all those sorts of things. That self-awareness is yes. always a good thing. Yes, absolutely. Yes. Do you think there's any discipline-specific advice for for writing is I mean I, w- we can't we can't really tran- transcend our own disciplinary backgrounds and and training you know you're coming from English and I'm coming from uh, religion but do, what advice do you give for folks when it comes to sort of relating the discipline to the teaching philosophy statement how should it be how might it be successfully different for an English person or a chemistry person.
1: I think so much of that, again, depends on the the committee. What kind of position you're applying to? Is it more generalist? Is it interdisciplinary? What kind of position is it? Um, But I do think somehow showing that you're thinking about teaching, and we've talked about this, in relation to your discipline. Because you don't teach writing the same way you teach math. And you don't teach biology the same way you teach religion courses. So being aware of that and showing your committee that you are aware of that, yeah. I think is important. And our, our consultants, shameless plug, in the Graduate Writing Center, we are from a variety of disciplines. And so we try to match people with consultants from at least adjacent disciplines yeah. Yeah. so that, like you just said, we will never be experts in STEM fields yep. or things like that. But um, having someone from that field that can relate who can relate is going to be really helpful as well
0: yeah some of that will take care of itself to some degree too if you're serious about your examples yes because that will then show very concrete discipline embedded you know versions of well what does it mean to do the critical thinking stuff in your discipline right yes the The show, don't tell. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
1: Our lovely cliche yeah. of show, don't tell that we talk about uh-huh. in all of our writing courses. Yes. That's
0: exactly right. You were starting to allude to this, but let's talk uh, a little bit about the, the the teaching philosophy statement in relation to the other documents that uh, someone applying for a job might be asked to produce. So, of course, like a cover letter, the CV, and oftentimes a research agenda, too. There is... You know, we have to think about the genre of each of those documents, but also know that they're coming to the reader as a packet, right, and and forming a perspective on this professional individual's identity.
1: I think they need to dovetail but not overlap. So, again, each of these documents and, like, faith statements and diversity statements, they're Mm -hmm. all very limited in scope. And length. Yeah. Um, and so you have precious space in each of them to accomplish what you're trying to accomplish. So don't waste that reiterating what you've already said. Yeah. But at the same time, if you have this really strong diversity statement, but none of that is reflected in your actual teaching practices, they're gonna say, well, wait a minute. <laughs> right. Yep. Is she actually serious yes. about what she's saying in these other statements? Yeah. Um, and so I think an awareness that it actually relieves some pressure in terms of you don't have to say it all again, right? Um, and you can, well, to some extent, hopefully trust that they've looked at the others. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I do think not having it reflect those documents, but not repeating yourself, is really key. Yeah. Um, yeah. What would you say? To yeah, that? I
0: think. Uh, Co- cohesiveness yes. of it is just is is probably the way that i would approach it and i think that you know cl- as you say clearly if if some, if you you have all of this wonderful aspirational language in your diversity statement but it it doesn't it doesn't play out at all in your in your teaching philosophy then then a thoughtful reader would go these things are one of these things is not true
1: (laughs) (laughs) exactly which is uh, not a good thing to have during a job application so
0: and 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 to just think about you're trying to give a search committee a robust picture of who you are in all of those aspects of, you know in in the faculty life we usually talk about the three-legged stool the teaching the research and the service yes. and the service part is also you should also think in terms of like institutional um, fit and collegiality and just uh, the the accountability to other folks in your institution and that sort of thing so you want your all of your documents to say those things the, 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 to to get at those three things but in a way that they can see that one individual one cohesive individual is doing all of those things is thinking all those thoughts yes. uh, rather than three different individuals yes. or however it might
1: So one identity but different aspects yes. of that identity uh-huh. yes uh-huh. exactly yeah
0: so any thoughts about how institution type or or position type would influence these calculations
1: so again, back to audience. Yeah. Um, thinking about institutions, there are so many different categories. You have like yep. faith-based versus secular, public mm-hmm. versus private, teaching or research focused. Whether you're at a, you're applying to a small liberal arts college or an R one huge university, um, I think that, partly, I mean it very much influences, the language but also the content. So if you're applying to a small liberal liberal arts college, um, you can emphasize small group discussion-based classes versus if you're applying to a giant university where you might be teaching courses that are 60 students to hundreds of students, yes. mm-hmm. um, you need to be thinking about how you're portraying your ability to do that. And that's not to say that your experience can't translate because um, I've never taught a class of 60, Yeah, um, but I need to be thinking about Conveying to them that what I have done mm-hmm. will be applicable and yep. I can translate that to that situation. Yep. Um, things like the faith based versus secular institution. If you're going to a secular institution or applying, you're probably not going to want to spend a whole paragraph talking about how you pray before classes to <laughs> en- encourage <For> student <laughs> mentorship, you right. know, that yep. kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, so I would just think about how they're going to take whatever you're saying, um, and if it's fitting in, again, with their mission. So again, and this was with any job application materials, you need to do your work to know what school you're applying to, know their mission, look on their website, look at all of their statements and values, and make sure that they could look at your documents and say, this would fit.
0: Right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, any final bits of advice or things that you would would just put in people's ears as they're working on on these documents and thinking about them
1: come to the writing center (laughs) the the graduate writing center we have you can um sign up for an appointment on our website and we'll contact you and you'll be paired with an advanced doctoral student to work with you on your documents so yeah and that's
0: not just a plug that's also Reiterating, this is a process, yes. right? You need the, that 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 it will go through many iterations. At the end, you will probably have many versions of this. Yes, that that you'll send depending on institutions and institution type. So the more feedback you can get, and the more constructive um, uh, comments and and help you can get, the better, of course.
1: Yes, seeing a first version of a teaching philosophy versus the one that students send out is really cool yeah that's a rewarding <laughs> it's, experience it's very it? yes. rewarding it's like okay we did good work yeah <laughs> and yeah. you know if you can develop and let go of the things that you really wanted to incorporate that yep. might not work Yep. um it'll serve you well
0: all right so. becca cassidy thank you so much for joining the show today thanks our thanks again to dr becca cassidy for joining the show today In our show notes for today's episode, you'll find a link to the Graduate Writing Center here at Baylor University, which can help Baylor graduate students refine their teaching philosophy and a host of other writing and publication documents. That's our show. Thank you so much for listening and join us next time on Professors Talk
1: Pedagogy.